My name is Willie, and I am an alcoholic. Y'all look real pretty out there this morning. I got up with this little book at the Colorado State Convention a few years ago. And the chairs were down close like they are this morning. And I heard a little lady whisper to the lady sitting by her, Oh, my Lord, she's going to read her talk. In case you have a sheet of paper and it says, Your name is Willie and you are an alcoholic. You know, when you get up here and you're the last one, the last old dog to die, you really know what it means to be a born loser. And you people in this beautiful state ought to know what a born loser is. He's a fellow that walks along the seashore. He walks and he looks and he finally finds him a beautiful seashell. And he gets it and he cleans the sand off of it and he polishes it up real pretty and holds it up to his ear and gets a busy signal. This has been a beautiful, beautiful weekend. I appreciate so much being asked to, to share with you this morning. I always look around when I get to a conference or a convention for that woman who still has that hurt and the pain in her eyes. Because there are a lot of us here this morning, and we're all different. We share two things, and that's pain and loss of control. And I always look around till I find that gal, and I have found her this weekend. And I'm sorry about the rest of you folks, but that's who I'm going to be talking to. If I can relieve a little bit of that pain and hurt, that's what I want to do. You know, I don't know how it is here, but on the mainland, being an alcoholic nowadays is almost a status symbol. We have to sort of work hard to keep the social climbers out. You know, we're, we're hearing an awful lot about us, aren't we? On the talk shows, in magazines, in the newspapers, we're hearing a lot about us. And the only thing, a lot of this is so good, and I'm glad they're bringing us out of the back rooms and the closets, particularly us gals. But, you know, sometimes, have you ever noticed they describe us? An alcoholic is. Did you ever see anything that an alcoholic is? Always think when they get through with their description that the, the only thing consistent about an alcoholic is his inconsistency. You know, you take an old drunk and he walks by your house every morning for eight years. 
at 8 o'clock in the morning. He walks by, and you think one morning, well, shoot, I'm going to go out there and speak to him. Hell, he won't come. If they just wouldn't try to describe us. As I say, there are a whole lot of us here this morning. And we're so different. We share these two basic ingredients. But the details of our lives are so different. When I came to you, I listened only for those differences in the details of our lives. If I heard you talk about something that I had not done yet, then that made me different from you. Honey, please don't look for the differences in the details of the people that you hear. The people at the meetings that you're going to. Don't say, that doesn't apply to me. I have, a, I had the if onlys and the yes buts. And I listened to hear how you were different. Not how we were alike. And yes, in the details, in our backgrounds, and this is why we share our backgrounds. This is the only reason I'm up here this morning. I have two jobs up here. And that's to tell you what alcohol did to me and what Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me. But listen, hon, for what it did to me as a human being, where it took me as a human being, the dignity it took away from me as a human being. Listen for that. Listen for the pain that you hear in the woman's voices when she gets up and tries to tell you what it was like for her. You'll hear that pain. I want to tell you, because of these differences in our backgrounds, they want us all, some of these writers and some of these people, want us all to be so much alike. An alcoholic is. They want us to be maybe full of fear and full of tragedies in our background and, and unhappy childhoods. And of course, hon, you're going you're gonna to meet a lot of people that had extremely unhappy childhoods and extremely complicated backgrounds. But you're going to meet a lot of ordinary Joes, too. Just plain, ordinary people. Well, Clarence was talking about last night, about our inventory. I was so amazed that when I finally took my inventory, I found out I was ordinary and that that was okay. Just plain, plain ordinary. So if, if you're searching for the why, I wasted so much time. I racked up so many heartaches looking for the why. I kept saying, why me, Lord? Why did you do this to me? Why couldn't you have done it to a Baptist preacher's wife? Because she wasn't supposed to drink no hell. Why me? I, I searched 
and I wasted a lot of valuable time looking, trying to find the answer, why am I an alcoholic? Had a man explain to me later, you know, Willie, did you ever go to a shrink or did you ever ponder and worry about why you are allergic to penicillin? Your body is allergic to penicillin. And when the doctor found that out, and when you tell a doctor that now, you don't worry about whether it was caused during your childhood or not. Or if you have some sort, sort of psychotic tendencies of some sort. The same man explained to me the difference between a psychotic and an alcoholic. He said, you know, Willie, he said a psychotic, he knows that five and four make ten. An alcoholic knows that five and four make nine, but he worries about it. But, hon, I want to tell you a little bit about And as I get further along, I'll try to talk a little faster. It isn't easy for us Texans, I'll tell you that. But I want to tell you a little bit about this ordinary childhood. I grew up in this little town that's on your program there, Spring, Texas. And now, hon, when I tell you it's a little town, I mean it is a little town. Houston's trying to move in on us now. We're not we're not taking to it so pretty good. We have sort of a ring of land around that town, and they can get so close and no further. But it was a little town when I was growing up there. We didn't we didn't even have a village idiot. We all took turns. But it's a little German farming community. The people that came there came from Germany. They found good land and good water, and that's all the German needs to settle down. And they settled there in this little community. And everything in Spring, Texas, revolved around the church. One church, the German Lutheran Church, and the school. And after you said that, you have all the complications, my child. The biggest thing that ever happened in Spring, Texas, every year was the church picnic. Now, of course, all good Germans make good homebrew. And as a child at the church picnics and at the dances and at the barn raisins and birthings and everything, we were all given a, a glass of homebrew to drink, all the kids, no big deal. The minister didn't get up on Sunday morning and preach about the evils of drink because Ellie made good homebrew, too. <clears throat> I grew up there sort of like Topsy. I graduated from high school. No big trauma in the background. I, I had grown up liking people. I don't have a self-conscious bone in my body. I liked people. I was comfortable around people. Didn't know I wasn't supposed to be. I went off to college, and when we, after we've been in a while and got our brains unscrambled, we can look back and, and see all sorts of little signposts. 
and I always thought that this was my very first one. I chose the largest all-girls school in the world to go to. Isn't that terrible? It didn't take me but a year to find out I was in the wrong place, so I went over to a co-ed school. I graduated in 1944 from Southwestern University in Georgetown. And, you know, when I got off with these girls that had come from the big towns, like Fort Worth and Dallas, but as I've worked with teenagers for so long, I have found out that so many of the traits that we look back and think, I was uncomfortable, I was this, that, and the other. This is something we share with all teenagers. They have all sorts of phobias about themselves. Their ears are too big. Their feet are too big. They worry about all sorts of things. And I, I worried about not having done the glamorous things that these other girls have done. But I, I find, as I really look at it, that this is not very profound, and it's not very different. It's ordinary. Most teenagers are very unsure of themselves. As I say, I graduated in 1944, and I went back to spring. And I announced to my good German papa that I was going to New York to be a model. Now, Papa didn't know exactly what a model was. But he had passed through New York on his way in World War One, and he said, no, that's not what you're going to do. Now, this is 1944, remember, and teenagers didn't argue with Papa in 1944. I said, yes, sir, what did you have in mind? And he said, your brother is all fighting a war, brothers. And I want you to go into Houston, and I want you to do what you can for the war effort. For sure, I had lots of things that I thought I could do <laughs> for the war effort. But Papa, I don't think, had any of those things in mind. So I said, well... What can I do? And he said, I want you to go in and get you a job teaching school. And I thought, oh, my Lord. I never saw a school teacher in my life that looked like she had one minute's fun. But I went. And, you know, in later years, when we were looking back at this section of my life, and when I read the articles now, and they say that alcoholics are people that have never really been fulfilled in their lives. They've never really gotten to do what they were, they wanted to do. I hadn't been in that classroom six weeks till I knew that this is the only way I ever wanted to make a living in my life. I love teaching. I love everything about it. I love these kids. And when I retired, I racked up 27 years in the classroom with America's teenagers. I heard one little lady say one time, that's why she drinks. <laughs> These kids are great. If you have one of them, just let them go through their growing pains and love them. They'd be all right. They're beautiful. So we couldn't... The psychiatrist and I couldn't point back and, and say 
this is where you, you fouled up. I taught there in Houston for four years, and then I don't know about Hawaii, but Texas has some funny laws, and when they run out of everything else to do, they pass some more funny ones, and they passed one that said if you hadn't had practice teaching, they would not give you a contract the following year. I had not studied to be a teacher. I was teaching on an emergency basis, so I had to go back and take practice teaching. So after teaching for four years, I went back and took practice teaching. And I chose a little university up in the center of the state in San Marcos, Texas. And I had worked on my master's degree at the University of Houston. And I thought, well, I'll go up there and take my practice teaching and, and add some more hours to my master's. And I got up there and I didn't get home with my MA degree, but I got home with my degree that meant a lot more to me, and that was my MRS. I met and married the man that I really don't know, and neither will you after a while, but I'm still married to that dude. Now, at this point in my talk, I also heard a little remark about, well, I wonder if she ever did any drinking. And at this point, maybe some of you think I stayed in one room and they squirted it to me through the keyhole. No, this is where the plot thickens up a little bit. I met and married a United States Air Force officer, a pilot. And he took this little old barefoot ignorant girl out of Texas. And he was stationed up at Scottfield, Illinois. And he took me right across the river, you know, from St. Louis, Missouri. And he took me up there and put me in a world that I had only read about and dreamed about living. You know, as a teacher, I've always been fascinated with words. And I was thinking this morning how much prettier aloha sounds than howdy. <laughs> But when I got up there, you know, and he introduced me to the first time to all these pretty little drinks in these pretty glasses with the long stems and all that garbage, the orange peels and the limes and the olives and the... And they had such pretty names, like Manhattan and Martini. And it sounded so much more glamorous and, and swinging than beer. I loved everything about this world he took me into. I love that officer's club. I love those nightclubs like I had never been in before or even seen. I like those little smoky bars with that combo sitting over there in the corner. And the, and the smoke just so thick you had to cut it. And I, all the laughter and, and the I loved every bit of it. And hon, contrary to what you will hear a lot of times in AA, I like the taste of a whole bunch of that stuff. I really did. They mix it all up and they put, you know, a little fruit juice in it and they do all this to it and, and stuff all that garbage in it. And I don't know, but I found it real tasty. <laughs> <laughs> 
I liked it, and when one passes by my nose on the airplane, I still, you know, do the bird dog trick. But I loved everything about this life. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. And we had a beautiful time for a couple of years. We did a lot of partying, and, and my husband is a hard, two-fisted drinker, and and we went a lot, and it was it was great. They picked my man up and sent him to Korea. And I went back to wait for him to come home, went back to Spring, Texas, and they got me a job in Spring teaching school. And... As we talk about this invisible line that we cross over, maybe this is where I put the first foot over. I don't know. This is where my lone drinking begun. You know, my husband is of the disposition that if I am in Spring, Texas, and he is in Korea, I had better be drinking alone. I had better be doing everything alone. So this is where my lone drinking took place. When he got back from Korea, we tried to pick up right where we had left off. But there was something different about Willie. I noticed that I said there's something different. It wasn't any great, big, profound difference. They were small, the differences. I had had a few blackouts where I could not remember. They weren't long in in scope. I would begin a letter to him at night, and I would have to get up and and check it that next morning to see about how I ended it up. Small blackouts. I would forget a telephone conversation or a portion of a conversation with someone. What time I was supposed to be somewhere. The blackouts were very small in the beginning. And they were more troublesome than anything else. When he got back, I thought this would all be all right. Because, see, my circumstances had changed. My man was home, and everything's going to be all right. These little worrisome things that I had noticed, I never connected with alcohol. I connected with his absence and with being unhappy. Because my man was gone. But these differences began to grow. You know, there are a lot of us that weren't liars, we weren't cheats, we weren't phonies. But you know, if you if you drink enough and this thing begins to happen to you, this insidious disease of alcoholism doesn't attack you some night in your sleep. It comes a little bit at a time like a growing cancer. And as this thing began to grow, I found that in order to protect myself, as I'm looking back now, I realized why I became a liar. We have to, to protect ourselves. Maybe the people that never make it as an alcoholic that try real hard, maybe they can't become good enough at this at lying and rationalizing. But we get good at it, good at it, because we have to practice. You know, you don't miss work Monday and Tuesday and go in on Wednesday and tell the boss that you were ill and then giggle. 
You tell him you are ill. And you look ill. And you act ill all day. And by the end of the day, you are convinced yourself that you are sick. Because we do this beautiful job of acting and we become actors and liars. We become rationalizers. And we carry these things. If you, if you haven't walked in here and been a booming success, remember, we carry these things. A man told me one time, said, Willie, you know, in many of our cases, the personality of the person brings on the alcoholism. But in a lot of cases, the alcoholism brings on the personality. And I believe this. The thousands of women that I have worked with in these years, I believe this with all my heart. I became a liar. I became a cheat. I became an expert at rationalizing. I got where we, we have to, to become experts at this. I got where I could rationalize anything that happened. And I put these traits right on in when I came to you. They had become a part of me. And told me one time, said, Willie, I swear you still at this rationalizing. Because when you would tell me about something, then I would rationalize it in my head and it didn't apply to me. And he told me, he said, you know, you're, 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 you're really good at this. You remind me of a fellow that, you know, here one time we, Police jerked him out of this burning building and shook him around for a little while. Poor old drunk. And they said, you know, George, we have told you and told you not to smoke in bed. And he said, hell, the bed was on fire when I got in it. Now, Sugar, if you catch yourself doing this more and more and more, but we start in order, it's a self-protection. It's a cloak we must put over ourselves. We have to lie to protect our source. We have to lie to protect the blackouts and what happened. We walk around in a, in a living lie. Have you ever walked around with answers to questions that you haven't been asked yet? You know, we'll, we'll climb a tree to tell a lie when we can stand flat-footed on the ground and tell the truth. This becomes a part of us. So, hun, be prepared for the fact that, that you're new with us and that it's going to be a part of your makeup to not necessarily lie to us, but to keep lying to yourself. And that's what you have to work on. Quit selling yourself a bill of goods. Learn to know yourself. Things didn't get. I have never yet heard anybody standing up telling their story and getting, you know, in the depths of their alcoholism and saying things got better. No. Things begin to get progressively worse. I don't have to go into all the details with any woman alcoholic sitting out there. Any man alcoholic sitting out there. I don't have to tell you all the things that happened to me. 
in my submersion into alcoholism. I know you men hurt. I don't take anything away from you. But the humiliation and the degradation of a Roman alcoholic, there's nothing quite like it, is there? You know, you never see a cartoon about a woman drunk. I don't think women's lives going to change that. I think the one word that hurt the most and that I still hear applied after these years is pitiful. You men can get all stoned up and you can put a lampshade on your head and you can get on the table and you can dance and you are darling. But you let a woman try the same thing. And you'll hear murmurs around the room, isn't that pitiful? Our pain isn't any worse. It's just a little different. Thank God for the men in AA when I came. Thank God. That they didn't look at me like I just crawled out from under a rock the way other people were looking at me. Those fine men looked at me with compassion, and they felt my pain. Things began to get pretty sticky, and we went on what I like to describe as a triangle that many of you will follow along with me today. And it was odd when I got to you that there was a triangle. But we started out at the only point. We had no idea what was happening to Willie and what was wrong. We started out, all right, there must be something wrong with Willie physically. So we go to the doctor. And he gives Willie a complete checkup, trying to find out about this strange behavior. And God bless all of these people that dealt with me. They always examined me and then talked to my husband. But after all of his great medical probing, and of course we didn't get into my drinking, I had no idea that drinking was the problem. Alcohol was the problem. I was looking out, out. I wanted some circumstance. I wanted something about me to be wrong. I wanted to have something physically wrong with me. Somebody was talking about the insanity. And I doubted that when I came to you. And all I have to remember is that I went to a doctor hoping there would be something physically wrong with me. And Lord, now I don't even like to have a headache. I don't want anything physically to be wrong with me. But I wanted that doctor to give me something dignified that I could say to myself, this is what it is, Willie. Simple. We give that some medicine or we operate on it or we do something to it and you'll be all right. But this man called my husband in and he said, She's healthy as a horse. Of course, I was young and I was healthy and alcohol had not done to me what it would finally do to me physically. 
So we didn't have any answer there. Things rocked along. The blackouts got more intense. That complicates our lives, and things did not get better. And we went to that second point of that triangle. Okay, if there's not anything wrong with Willie physically, then there must be something wrong with Willie mentally. And oh, how I wanted the psychiatrist that I went to to find something to give me some dignity. I wanted him to tell me that I was schizophrenic. Isn't that pretty? The word. Paranoid. I could talk to folks about that. If he would tell me I was a little bit of any of these things, or that I had some deep psychological problem, or even some small psychological problem, I could tell folks... You know, those words that I wanted him so bad to give me, these labels, they sounded so much better than drunk. The psychiatrist and I had sessions, and by then I was an accomplished liar, and I lied to this man. I don't know whether I did it purposely or whether I didn't know the truth. It took you people to teach me truth. But, of course, I could not explain to him what was happening. I didn't know what was happening myself. I couldn't be honest with this man. I would, I would try to give him. He seemed to want a reason. He seemed to want me to tell him, you know, what was wrong. So I didn't know what was wrong. So I made up stuff. And this was back in the day before the tape recorder was used. And this dude was sitting there taking notes. And I would go to a session, you know, and he would take all these notes on some wild story I was telling him about my childhood that I had managed to make up. And, and about my mother hating my father or my father hating my mother or my potty training or something, you know. And, and the session would be over and he'd put a little period there. And, of course, I'd come back a week later. And he knew where I was in the story, but I didn't know. And God bless him, I was the the first alcoholic that he had ever dealt with. And he, you know, I don't know whether he's still in practice or not. Because he went out after 10 or 12 sessions and had a session with my husband once again. And he asked him one question. Are you sure this girl's a college graduate? He thought I was a little funny, all right, but he couldn't get to the funniness. He knew I was a very practiced liar, and he couldn't find out why, because, see, we didn't touch on my drinking. I was living in a world that drinking was an accepted way of life. We never even touched on Things walked along, and they got worse. We went to the only other point in the triangle that we knew of at the time. We thought, all right, if there's not anything wrong with Willie physically, nothing mentally that they can find, then there must be something wrong with Willie spiritually. 
You know, and I, I figured to myself, all right, I was very close to the church when I was growing up. And in the German Lutheran Church, it's like a lot of other religions. You just don't walk down the aisle and say, I want to be a member. You study for two long, hard years. And you learn that catechism backwards and forwards. And then on Palm Sunday morning, you stand up in front of the whole congregation. And the minister, he asks you a whole bunch of questions, and you better know the answer. Then they'll let you come into the church. And see, when I talked to this man about my spiritual condition, he and I found out that I knew a lot about God. It took you people in Alcoholics Anonymous to teach me to know God. And there's a world of difference, a world of difference. So we found that I knew a lot about God. We figured that I knew right from wrong, and I knew that the things I was getting involved in, the situations I was finding myself in, were wrong, but I didn't know why. You know, we talk a lot about, I've heard the word, and I, I love to hear it used over and over and over in connection with this program. Miracle. And you'll also, if you're new, you'll hear the word coincidence. A beautiful man in Jackson, Mississippi, gave me a, a, a definition, passed it on to me of a coincidence, and I love it, and I want to pass it on to those of you who haven't heard it. He said, Willie, you know, a coincidence is a small miracle in which God wishes to remain anonymous. We were stationed in Omaha, Nebraska, and they were having a function in Omaha. And there was a little tiny article in the newspaper about this function, whether it be a conference or a convention, I never knew. But it gave the preamble of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it gave a phone number, and it said, if you want any further information, call this number. And my husband has never been able to explain why, when he was reading the paper, along with all the other things that were in that newspaper, the word alcoholic jumped out at him. All right, now, you were two smart, educated people, you know, smart. But we had never thought of alcohol as being at the root of the problem. But somehow that rang a bell. And he asked me, he said, Willie, do you think you might be an alcoholic? He might as well have accused me of having a VD, you know, anything. I said, of course not. And began to tell him all the reasons why I wasn't. Because, see, I knew what an alcoholic was. He was a bum under a bridge. And invariably, he was a man. Women did not become alcoholics 25 years ago. They just didn't. But he tore this little article out and kept it. And he 
call this telephone number. And he talked to the lady. And she asked him, said, will she talk to us? And he said, no, she won't even talk to me about it, let alone y'all. She said, we can't get very easily on that base because General LeMay happened to be there in Omaha at the time and he didn't cotton the people running off his air base on and off. So she said, but I will give you a copy of the big book. I will mail it to you. Okay, he gets his copy of the big book and he reads it. And he closes up this thing and he has his answer. Miracles. Coincidence. One big book. And it was all over my house. It was in the kitchen. It was in the bathroom. It was in the basement. Any place he thought I was going to be, he put this big book. Now, I wouldn't touch this thing. Now, remember, I've always been enamored with words, but there was a word on this cover that I didn't like. And it wasn't this one. It was this one. I didn't like the word alcoholic. To me, it spelled weakness. It spelled lack of character. All of the things that that I did not want to be, that I looked at myself and said, is that what you are? And I rejected it, honey. On a word basis, I rejected it. And touched this book. But things did get bad enough. Who was talking about problem last night? When things get bad enough at home, sometimes we get that problem. And I was prodded. I was either told, you know, shape up. Or ship out. So I made a phony move. I told him, all right, I will go to one of the dumb meetings. Because he had told me they had meetings. So I got all dressed up for you. And I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in Omaha, Nebraska. And oh, the phoniness, the... the what had happened to me, it had happened so slowly and so insidiously that I didn't even know it. I came home from that first meeting, and I told my husband, Honey, that is the finest group of people I have ever met in my life. But, oh, my God, they got lots of problems. I said, Do you know that there are some of the, the, the men that have been in jail for drinking, and they've been in jail over and over and over again. And there's some of the women that have been in jail for drinking. What I did, hon, I looked down my nose at Alcoholics Anonymous and at the alcoholics. Because, see, I had not done these things. I did to you for the next four years. What my teenagers often do to me in the classroom. I come in in the morning and I open up my, my textbook and I say, now on page 86, we're going to do such and so. I'm going to read this chapter. We're going to do blah, blah, blah. And when I get all through and I'm ready to go, old boy in the back raises in, what page we on? 
I said, didn't you, didn't you hear me? Yes, ma'am, I heard you, but I wasn't listening. For the next four years, that's what I did to you. I heard what you said, but I didn't listen. How many of you knew on this program? You learn to listen because you're going to listen and learn. Well, I am firmly convinced that if you haven't been that booming success, listen to me now. I am firmly convinced that from the time I walked through that door in Omaha, Nebraska to that little meeting, with all of my arrogance and all of my phoniness and all of my my insanity, the deterioration, the, the person that wasn't really there anymore, that from the moment I walked through that door, God took me by the hand and walked every step of the way with me. Even though I didn't make it, Year after year, I didn't make it. I was a periodic. I did not see the need in this daily business, this daily maintenance. I could go for long periods of time and never even want a drink. And then out of the blue, and when my husband would say, what happened? I didn't know. Really nothing had happened. I thought in these periods that I was controlling my drinking. I wasn't. You explained to me that there are two types of alcoholics, daily drinkers and periodics. But I, I, I could not, I could not listen. I argued with everything you told me. I took issue with everything you told me. I heard a beautiful story in AA not very long ago that thought, you know, and it just summarized what I did. Because I fussed and I quarreled with you and I argued and I yes but and I, I said you're like that but I, I, I didn't do that. I haven't done that. And I heard this story it said about this lion that killed and ate a bull. And this you know, he stood up after he'd eaten this bull, and he roared, and he roared, and he roared. And a hunter came along and shot him. And the moral of this story is that if you're full of bull, keep your mouth shut. I argued and I quarreled and I would go out and get drunk and I would come back. But see, God had my hand. And every time I came back and God bless you, you accepted me. I never had a person say to my face, I'm sure it took place in the back. But I never had them say, Willie, you're not going to make it. They'd say, Willie, we're glad to have you back, honey. You're going to make it. All the things that you talked about and that you told me that were going to happen to me in that four years, they happened. I had looked down my nose at you gals that had frequented the jailhouses and the hospitals. And of course, I had been in a hospital. I had been put there. But see, I was having a nervous breakdown. The kind that turn into DTs, you know, those kind. 
But on the chart it said nervous breakdown. But I looked down at my, at my nose at you gals that had been in jail. And when you would talk about the humility of sitting there in that jail, I didn't, I didn't hear that. I didn't listen to that. But I want to tell you something. In those next four years, a lot of things happened to Willie that had to happen. And you know, God walked through all of those things with me too. They had to happen. Because in order to get Willie on her knees where this Kraut stubbornness could hear better. These things happen. If you have never been in a drunk tank in Seattle, Washington, you have missed a treat. And see, I was so arrogant and everything, telling you that I had never been in jail. When I finally, God has a sense of humor, don't you ever doubt When I finally made that jail, the only thing I had on was my raincoat. <laughs> had a man ask me one time, Willie, was it one of those see-through raincoats? I said, I'm not going to tell you. Let you wonder about it. All the things that you told me booze would do to me, it did. It broke my back. It took all my human dignity away. At this time, I think, I had managed a year of dryness. And there are a lot of folks that manage a while of dryness. And I had managed a year. But if you have ever seen a perfect example of Mary Martyr, that's who I was. I was sober. I was going to those meetings. I wasn't going to be happy about it. I wasn't going to let you put any of this joy off on me. Running around being happy you're alcoholic, being happy you're sober. I was sober. And that ought to be enough. I was like some of our old heads that sit in meetings, you know, and poor little newcomer comes through the door, and here's the old timer sitting there. You're going to be so glad, great to be sober. You're going to feel so good. It's going to bring you so much happiness. <laughs> and he sits there looking, or she sits there looking like a dead, you know, just been hit in the face with a dead fish. That's the kind of sober, dry I was. And I would very quickly tell you, I have not had a drink in a year. So, big deal. God stepped into my life at this time and gave me the most beautiful gift he has ever given me beside my sobriety. We had been married ten years. And I had been told I could never have a child. And God gave me a beautiful baby boy out there in Seattle. I had the baby that they said I'd never have. We were transferred to Montgomery, Alabama. And I think God knew then that he had me right where he wanted me. 
He put people in my life at that point. And darling, if you haven't found those people, you keep coming. They're there. They're there. It's, it's sort of like you're a tomato. You're not quite ripe. But you keep coming and those people will be there. In Montgomery, he gave me people that leaned on me hard. And when I was twirling my flag with my Mary Mortar banner on it, they didn't cotton to it so good down there in Alabama. And they didn't give me, you know, well, Willie, you'll, you'll be all right. Damn it, Willie, when are you going to get all right, you know? And when are you going to get what we have for you here? I remember a hard-nosed fellow named Charlie, and Charlie told me, he said, Willie, I'm going to tell you something at the end of a meeting one night. He said, we have an old story that we've been passing around for a long time. And he said, you know, of course, I, I was griping and a belly aching because I lived in a drinking world. My husband was still in the Air Force. It was his career. And he was going to stay in the Air Force, and he was climbing up there in the top bracket. And, of course, I wasn't helping. I was sort of kicking the ladder out from under him every once in a while. So it goes in the military. And But I fussed and I quarreled and I felt sorry for Willie because I lived in this drinking world and my man drank. And after I had been going to meetings for a while, he talked to some alcoholics and he asked them. He said, will it help Willie if I quit drinking? And I'll kill that bunch if I ever get a hold of them, because, you know, they told him, Nah, go ahead. <laughs> My man is a two-fisted hard drinker. And he kept right. He took you. See, if I could have just taken you on faith like that, been fine, but it didn't. But he said, All right. And when last time he offered me, you know, some real good sage advice about my behavior, he said, you got a problem and you solve it. See, honey, maybe you have come into AA and you you see all of the beautiful Al-Anons and you think, if I could just have this, if I could have this program as an integral part of my marriage, if my man would come to meetings with me, if he would go into Al-Anon, but, darling, I got news for you. Nine chances out of ten, he won't. And please believe me, that's okay. Of course, I look at the couples in AA, and I look at Al-Anon, and, and I, I do. I, I, once in a while, when I don't have anything else to do, I feel sorry for Willie. Because my husband has never been to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and he has never been to an Al-Anon meeting. As I said, he told me, I don't, I'm not recommending it, but I'm saying, honey, face, face what is. Your man wants you to solve your problem. He wants you back. He wants the woman he married. But old Charlie told me, he said, you know, Willie, you griping and a belly aching and a moaning about living in this drinking world. And said, you know, we have a fellow out here that, that used to drive a beer truck, and he's been in AA for a while. And people, newcomers will ask him, you know, 
George, how do you drive this beer truck and go in and out of these taverns all the time and handle all this beer and stay sober? And old George stood there a minute and he said, Hell, if I drove a garbage truck, I wouldn't eat the garbage. Because it was there in my refrigerator, because we had a well-stocked bar and kept that well-stocked bar, there was no reason for me to drink the garbage. So old Charlie kicked one of the prop out from under me. And he said, you know, Willie, quit fighting this acceptance. He said, there are three A's in AA. Admit that you're an alcoholic. Accept the fact that you're an alcoholic. And then if you really want to get all the beauty and joy and freedom that this organization has to offer you and this way of living has to offer you, get that other A, honey. Approve of your alcoholism. Approve of it. And he handed me a beautiful key when he said that word. I didn't know it at the time, but I know it now. He said, you know, we... we we make this thing. See, I wanted, you were giving me simple solutions. Clarence did a beautiful job up here last night, a beautiful job of, of showing us how simple this program is. These beautiful steps, they're not all complicated. But see, I didn't want simplicity because I didn't think I was simple. I wanted to be deep. I wanted profundity because I was profound. And you gave me simple cliches, profundity like, easy does it, <laughs> one day at a time. Now, if you would have put that in the ancient Greek language, I might have gone for it. It was so simple. But the admitting, the, the accepting, the admission was almost complete. But if you just got one foot into that admission, honey, go on and jump in the water. Admit it and then accept it. No, Charlie helped me with that. See, I wasn't helped with profundity. I was helped with the little things. And he said, Willie, I'm going to tell you a story that we've been passing around AA for a long time. Old Charlie, I don't know, he'd been in a long time ahead of me. And he said, when they first brought in those great big old diesel trucks, we didn't know how our men would handle these big big loads out on on the freeways, on the highway. And he said we decided that we they needed not only a driving test, per se, but they needed some sort of a psychological preparation. So we made up a psychological test for them. And we would give them the driving test and okay that, and then we would give them the psychological test. And... And they'd take him in the little room, and they had this old boy back there, and he passed his test fine. He could park that thing within 40 miles, and he was just doing great on his driving. He got in the little room, and they, they gave him a hypothetical situation. They said, now, if you were out one dark, dark, rainy night, and you had a full load on the back end of that rig, and, and it was raining hard, and the road was slick, and you were going down this hill, and you got down to the very bottom of it, and you put on your brakes, and you didn't have any brakes. You're gone. What would you do? And the old boy sat there a minute, and he said, Well, I'd wake up Leroy.
Now, the man thought, okay, the tester, he thought, you know, this is compassionate. He's going to wake up his helper, and, and this is good. But I want him to put it into words. And he said, you know, why would you wake up your Leroy? And he said, well, Leroy, he ain't never seen a great big wreck. That's how profound you were asking me to be. Accept the inevitable. Admit it and accept it. There it is. God gave me a beautiful woman named Rose. She lived there in Montgomery all of her life. She was in the islands not too long ago. I hope some of you heard her. She's the lady, she's beautiful, and it takes her 15 minutes to say, My name is Rose, and I'm an alcoholic. Takes her 10 minutes to say, Good morning. A real southern lady. And she sort of took me by the hand and walked the rest of the way with me. And see, I would complain, and I would fuss, and honey, if you open up, if you just let go and let God do this thing to you, give you this gift, if you will do this, all sorts of help will come your way. You'll even get help from civilians once in a while. One night, I, my husband came home and he came in, as his typical thing to do, and he shook up his shaker of martinis and, God, I could have chewed the stem off of that glass. And see, I had this little baby, and I would start in on my little song and dance, you know. How can you do this to me? I had put this man through pure, unmitigated hell for a long time, and I was saying, how could you do this to me? I said, those people in AA, they tell me I can't take a drink, and I can't take a pill, and I've been here with the baby all day long, and I am tired and I am nervous and they tell me I'm not supposed to do anything about it and my man looked straight at me and he said hell just be nervous <laughs> now you think about that a minute he has lived to regret the time that he said that Because I get up now and I announce, this is my nervous day. <laughs> Furthermore, I'm going to be nervous all day long. And it's my full intention to make everybody else nervous around me. <laughs> See, you had been telling me, Willie, just be, just be Willie. Nobody ever died from nervousness. I've never had to go to Slender Bollock. I just shake a lot. <laughs> and at my age and state of servitude, you know, I can get pretty nervous. I guess the nervous I can thread a sewing machine and it's a running. <laughs> but it's not a killing disease. 
There are going to be nervous days. There's going to be brown days. There's going to be... Oh, there's a word, me and my words, there's a word that I just... Depressed. <laughs> that is the most depressing word I know of. Have you ever noticed you get up in the morning and say, I feel like hell. And the day doesn't go too bad, but get up in the morning and say, I'm depressed. <laughs> there is something so depressing. <laughs> sure, honey, there's every day's not going to be, you know, an up day. If you don't have any, ever have any bad times, how are you going to know when you're having the good times? Sure, you're going to live. And this thing called living is not going to go along straight. You're going to have the peaks and you're going to have the valleys. Enjoy the valley because you know there's always the peak coming. Only a, a, an idiot locked up someplace is going to be happy all the time. Go ahead and have your down days. Have your nervous days. But you don't have to stick a pill. You don't have to stick a... Who wants to be tranquil all the time? <laughs> Tranquilizers. Well, you know, I think the whole state of Texas would be upset if I got tranquil. <laughs> this is no way to live. I want to... You told me that, that if I stayed sober and if I tried to live this program, I would feel again. And I want to feel. I want to feel my pain. I want to feel your pain. And if I've all zonked out up here, I can't feel anything. I want to cry. I shed buckets of tears during my active alcoholism. Tears to get things with. To get out of jams with. But today, when I feel something... I want the tears to come. I don't want to cover them up with a pill or a drink. I want to feel with you. I want to feel with that new girl. Rose took me out to lunch one day and she told me, she said, My God, Willie, you take yourself so seriously. When are you going to get your sense of humor back? Si enjoys his drinking. Leave him alone, honey. Let him drink. Now, before I have the Alanons to send me away from Hawaii without Continental's help, <laughs> please, let I love you, and but let me tell you, don't be angry at me, because I'm not talking about living with an alcoholic. I live with a normal drinker, whatever that is. But he is a normal drinker. Now, or at least he's this kind of a drinker that I consider normal. He comes in in the evening and he will say, I'm going to have a couple of beers, two beers before dinner, or I'm going to have two martinis or three martinis or whatever, or I'm going to have a, a margarita. And isn't that a pretty name? <laughs> I hate so bad they came out after I quit drinking because I... I say that name and I think, ooh, I wonder how it tastes. But, you know, he'd shake up one of those and, and he'll say, okay, I, I'm going to have a couple of drinks. And 
and then I will eat at 7.30. All right? 7.30 starts coming around, and, and I have dinner ready and everything. And maybe he has that much left of his drink or his beer. And he walks over to the sink, and he pours... I watch it go all the way down. I cried a lot when I was drinking. I've cried a lot since I've been sober. How can people do this? All right. He pours the rest of it out if he's not finished. And then he sits down and he eats. And after he eats, he wants a big dish of ice cream. Now, when he's all through with that crazy stuff, he goes to bed and he stays there. <laughs> Isn't that repulsive? I don't hear him do like, you know, get up at 3 o'clock in the morning. I don't hear him rattling around the house looking for a drink. He stays in the bed, and then he gets up, and he goes to work the next morning. And this is what I have to contend with. <laughs> but see, I was beginning to hate this man, hate his ability to do what I couldn't do. How can you do this to me? And Rose said, darling, get your sense of humor back. See, even a normal drinker that can pour some out, he gets a snootful every once in a while. And he gets, you know, his metabolism isn't always good and right. And he gets zonked every once in a while. And she said, why don't you get your sense of humor back and not ride him all the time? You are hurting yourself and your sobriety and your quality of your sobriety. And on the way home, I got to thinking about this. And I thought it is. The situation is real funny. Because I am ruining my Sundays when he happens, we go out to the club and, and he gets a little bit of a load on and he doesn't feel good the next day. And I pull the stuff, I, I pull the silent treatment, and I pout all day, and I ruin my day, I ruin my child's day, and I thought there must be a better way. My husband doesn't like fried eggs. <laughs> so I waited till we had had a big blowout at the club, and he, didn't, he wasn't, you know, feeling no pain when we got home. And the next morning, I fried his eggs just barely. And when I put them down, I shook them a little bit. When he got used to this, he didn't dare, you know, because he didn't want to be one of those, one of these alcoholics. So he tries to sit there and eat that thing and not turn green. So when he'd catch on, you know, and be waiting for him, I'd fry him real easy and put a little green food coloring on <laughs> I found out this beat the old pouting thing and the old envy. And 
My son came along. He was growing up. He came in one day and he said, you know, Mama, Ricky has a, a pet. I'd sure like to have one like it. And, of course, I thought that, well, he wanted, he was ready to, you know, look after a dog or a cat. And I said, well, honey, what kind do you want? I meant what kind of a dog or what kind of a cat. And he said, well, Mama, Ricky has a snake. I told you in the very beginning, I'm a country girl. And I'm married to a city boy. I'm not afraid of snakes, and he's scared spitless of them. So I told him, I said, okay, hon, i tell you what. Because see, we had a big, big party coming up at the club. And I told him, I said, well, darling, yeah, I'll, well, I'll get you one, but let's wait till Saturday to, to do it. So Saturday, we went down and we got us a long black king snake and we named him Jack. We had him in his little cage and the, in the glass cage in the back. And on the way home, I told Jeff, I said, you know, darling, uh, we had this party to go to tonight and we'll be busy and everything. I said, just take him on in your room and we won't bother daddy with it tonight. <laughs> See, all these years I've been wasting well, that night I helped him get drunk. Every time his glass would get empty, I'd fill that dude up. And man, he was feeling no pain. He was sure enough flying without his airplane that night. We got home and, and he went to bed. And the next morning I went in there and I got old Jack. I opened that bedroom door, and I put Jack in there and closed the door. Now, all you young people out there think you invented streaking. You didn't. son got a little older and he wanted, he loved the little mini bikes were just coming in. And he wanted one of those and we had land around our place and, and I knew he wouldn't have to get out on the street so I bought him a little Honda 50 and he took care of it and he, he treated it with respect and I went on up and bought him the 70 and we got up to the 100 and as the years went by and he got up to a 350. And I kept looking at that thing, and I thought, Lord, that looks like fun, and I bought me one. <laughs> we tear all over the state of Texas on those motorcycles. He's got a great big one now. I'm still on my 350, but I love that machine, and we have a lot of fun. And now, I told you, my husband is a pilot, and he is a very cautious man. <laughs> and he stands at the door. Y'all going to kill yourselves on those motorcycles. Where y'all going? What time you going to be back? And on Sunday morning when he has had a little bit too much. <laughs> another man with a sense of humor. My son doesn't know this little byplay is going on, and he's still not aware of it, but I always tell him, honey... Let's just rev them up here in the garage. Bang, bang, bang. 
vibrates. And so does his little head. Darling, you don't, you don't have to be unhappy if you don't want to be unhappy. So if that is the main problem, hang on for a little while and learn to live the way the people are telling you to live. And go to some Al-Anon meetings, you'll pick up a lot of other stuff. But see, honey, what I want to tell you is that I'm not, I'm no longer trying to change this man. You had been saying, well, just, just don't take yourself so seriously. Fill up a bucket of water. Stick your finger in it. Pull it out. Look what a big hole you made. <laughs> you know, if any one of us in this room fell off the end of the earth this afternoon, you know what the world's going to keep doing? Choo, round and around and around. It's going to keep right on going. But while the time that God has given me to live, I won't, as that beer commercial said, they don't have it, we have it. I want all the gusto there is out of life. And you gave it to me. You gave it to me. I can live every minute. I can take the bad. I can take the good. I can take the people. I can take the circumstances. And live with them. It's not going to be a bed of roses. Of course not. That's not what this thing is that's called living. That's not what it is. It's the good and the bad and the indifferent and the boring times and the down times and the up times and all the times. But we're sober. And we have this beautiful thing that we have here this morning. This beautiful thing that nobody can touch. We can't, we can't describe it. Accept what's happened to you. Approve of what's happened to you. Let God do with you what he is so ready. He's sitting up there waiting. He's waiting to do with you. But if you don't... Rose gave me a beautiful little thing that I, I want to share with you. It's very short. As children bring their broken toys for us to mend, I took my broken dreams to God because he was my friend. But instead of leaving him in peace to work alone, I hung around and tried to help with ways that were my own. At last I jerked him back and cried, Why must you be so slow? My child, he said, What could I do? You never would let go. Let go. Let go. Doesn't mean that you sit on your duck and do nothing. Let, let go of the extremism in your personality. I get up every morning looking for, for ways to help God. You know, I'm not the only one he's looking after. I do everything I can in my human power. But the, but the big things in my life are his. He got me here. He's going to get me home. He's given me you people that have given me a dream. Of reality. Dreams can be real. And we have a corner on that market. Our dreams can come true. We've already died once. Our world has come to an end one time for all of us. 
And we don't have to let it end again. We can let it go on. Together. Many people, I, I go in and I talk to civilian groups. Because thank God they are asking us alcoholics, what is alcoholism? And we are able to tell them that it is a disease coupled with an obsession. And when we get this obsession, we are sick, sick people. Not only physically then, we are sick mentally. And a lot of us didn't start out sick. But darling, you keep fighting this booze. Keep fighting the happiness that's here. Keep fighting the normalcy of just being an ordinary human being. Give what you have to give. Each one of you. God's given you a special gift. Use it. If it's just going to a meeting and being there time after time after time, and that oh, that newcomer goes out and he comes back and he sees you still sitting there. We don't have to sit in meetings and be profound. We just have to be there. Be there for that newcomer to see you're still here. There's a place for me to go. Thank God those men helped me. I found my sobriety and started on my real road of sobriety. June the 19th, 1957. And dear God, it's been good. But I, I talk to civilian groups, and, and they ask me, you know, what is alcoholism? That's usually what they hand me, you know, speak on alcoholism. Speak on AA. And I tell them, I don't know what AA is. Not really. And I'll tell you this morning, I don't know what AA is. But around 1956 or 57, there was an article in the grapevine, a little, a little thing down at the bottom. And I want to leave you this morning sharing this with you. AA is a spirit. It cannot be touched, nor can it be completely understood. It's as wide as the world, and yet small enough to fit snugly into the hearts and the minds of man. It has brought light where only darkness dwelt. It has given hope to the hopeless and help to those who yearned in despair. It has nourished forgiveness in those who knew no pity. It has given strength to the weak and humility to the strong. It has spurred to higher goals those who strove for nothing. It has taught patience to the hurried and action to the lazy. To youth it's given vision and to the aged promise, to the lonely companions and to the restless rest. To the sick it's been a doctor, and to the dying it has revived the desire to live. It has no judgment against the unteachables, nor has it praise for those who learn. To the outcast it's been a family, and to the childless it has given children. To the ignorant wisdom and to the wise tolerance. It has given to all men that which is most precious. It's given a love for truth. With enough left over to share with each other. 
Thank you so much for having me in your beautiful, beautiful state.